Hello, everyone. My name is Eugenio Vaccari, and I'm the chairperson of Insol Era. Insol Era is a group of early researcher academics in the wider community of Insol International. I'm very pleased to be here today with Christoph Polus, who, of course, needs no introduction. Christoph has been a professor of law at the Humboldt Universität zu Berlin from 1994 to 2019. Christoph has worked several times as a consultant for the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and has worked as an advisor for Germany at the UNCTAD trial. Christoph is a member of various international institutions, such as the American College of Bankruptcy and International Insolvency Institute, of which he has been pres- a vice president sorry, until summer 2017. He is associate member of South Square London and since the 1st of September 2019 of councils with White and Case in Berlin. Christoph, welcome and thanks for being here today. Thank you very much, Eugenio. That is one of the nicest introductions I ever received. Thank you very much. I feel very much flattered and honored. Well, we'll start with some general questions, then we'll move on to questions related to your recent publications before concluding with some questions targeted to our audience of early career researchers. Starting with the general questions, how and when did you decide to pursue your career in insolvency law and what impacted uh, this choice? That's very simple and it's, it's sort of private. My father has been a professor, a law professor, and I had classes with my father. And imagine he was a professor of law, not only of law, but also in, in insolvency law and in civil procedure law. And guess what I had? I had a chair for insolvency law and civil procedure. So um, it's, it's a lack of fantasy in, and maybe an affection to my father. So that is the very simple answer to that. So what attracts you in insolvency law compared to other fields of law, if anything specific? Well, it's, what I find particularly fascinating is that it's what I call a meta layer over the entire law. So it's not just that you do this tiny little field of real estate law or stuff like that. When you're doing insolvency law, you have to deal with all sorts of legal areas, including criminal law, including tax law, including property law, including contract law. So you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's, it's covering everything. That's number one. Number two, the task of insolvency law, and maybe we'll come back to that in the course of this um, interview. The task of this law, namely to clean up the national economy, the, the economy of a particular state, of a particular region, now of a mind, of course, something like, like Europe, uh, to clean up and to take care of the health, healthy condition of an economy. That is the original and, in my understanding, the most important and challenging task of insolvency law. And since it's such a meta-layer, as I said, I, I, I felt always attracted by the complexity and the, the well, importance of this field of law. Thank you. And I think that a lot of people would agree with you and with your answer. I think that there have been uh, 
especially recently, you mentioned the euro prices and things like that, a lot of papers on the issue of sovereign debt. So a lot of people do feel probably the same as you. Now, a curiosity, if I may, as a professor, you held the chair in a variety of subjects. One of them is ancient Roman law. This is certainly unusual among insolvency academics. Can you tell us why you were interested in this topic? And to what extent is ancient Roman law relevant for modern insolvency law? How much time do you give me? I mean, that is, I I, I could give a lecture, an entire lecture on that. I I tried to, uh, to keep it short. First of all, I was always extremely interested in, in, historic, in, in, in history and in historical developments and evolutions, actually. I always want to know where does this or that come from. So in, in every respect, if I get to know a new person, I, I, I tend to ask the question, where does your name come from? So in order to, get to, to see the flow of history, this is number one. Number two, the particular feature that I was interested in ancient Roman law had, of course, very much to do with my then teacher, who uh, afterwards become, became my boss at the chair in, 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 at the University of Munich. And he was very deep into ancient Roman law. And uh, through him, I met further people, particularly someone from a German Jew who'd left Germany in, in 33, who then became, after a long odyssey, the Regis Chair of, of Civil Law at Oxford, and then he moved over to, to Berkeley, David Daube. He became my teacher and friend, actually, to a certain degree. So it, it, those were very personally affected, and this is the personal side. Now, the, 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 the practical side. There is not much of a connection, of direct connection. Nevertheless, I still recommend strongly a course more than a course in ancient Roman law to any lawyer. Because if you want to be concise, if you want to learn about the value of the language in order to formulate very precisely, extremely precisely, a particular issue in law, then you should go through more than just one seminar and one class in ancient Roman law. It is unbelievable the precision in describing a particular legal issue, what these ancient Roman giants have done. Moreover, and now I'm coming closer to insolvency law, that is what I constantly learn. And actually what I'm, I'm right now I'm about to, to, to write once again, it's not only today, it is um, uh, repeatedly that I'm writing on that. The Romans have formed a way of insolvency law, which is interesting in many respects. It was driven almost exclusively by the creditors. And that is a fascinating approach. And if you look back to the German development during the last 30 years, we had until 99 of the last century, we had a very much court-driven procedure and moved then, and we were extremely proud of it, 
to into a direction of which I sat and recognized, of course, immediately that it was back to ancient Rome because it was more, much, much more creditor driven than it used to be before. So if you if you take history as a raw model of where you are and what you do, then it's 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 fascinating to see how now don't take a personal my dear friend Eugenio. When young people are telling you, oh, this is extremely modern, this is very new, it has never been exist it has never existed before, including the, the, the artificial intelligence and what have you. Sure thing, but the underlying problems are age honored and most of them, literally most, if not all of them, you can find in one way or the other as a as a sort of raw model in ancient Roman times. These guys were brilliant enough to to see and to formulate the underlying problems. And when you look from from this sort of higher perspective, you discover in the modern world one relative after the other one. You know them. You know these problems, and it's now a little bit different that they are solved, or it's completely the same way. So that is what makes history for me particularly interesting. And I agree with you, actually, um, because, I mean, if, uh, if you think of, for instance, thinking right now of avoidance and clawback actions, the Romans has a, has a lot to... Do you know, do you know the, the universal name for the clawback action? Uh, the actual Pauliana you're referring yeah. to. With whom are you talking? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, I got it. Moving on to the topic of insolvency law. In your view, what are the main purposes of insolvency law and whose interests should it serve? And do you think that these interests have changed over time or should they change? Fantastic questions. Fantastic questions. And as a matter of fact, I'm, 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 I'm considering to tell you now about my publication because it deals with it. Allow me to, to, to answer in, in, in a somewhat broader approach. I'm wearing in my mind, so to speak, the idea to write something about the philosophy of bankruptcy law for the main reason that I do not know what the philosophy is. My answer, my usual answer to your question, what is the main purpose of insolvency law is an economic one, not a legal one. An economic one, namely to take care that assets in an economy which have turned to lower level of productivity are let back, directed back, readjusted as quickly as possible to where they unfold their best and optimal productivity. That is what I usually say that this is the purpose of insolvency law. Brings me to your second question, uh, whose interests should it serve? The answer is the interest of the particular economy you are talking about. So if you are talking about the Italian insolvency law, we are uh, talking about the Italian economy. When we are talking about the European, we are talking about the European economy. and. 
This is what I would say is the main purpose. Under these circumstances, if, if you have a, such a approach, you can forget about uh, should it be uh, for the benefit of the debtor, should it be for the benefit of the creditor or anyone else. It is on a higher level. It's on a higher level. It's the economy. However, thinking about, and it's not too long ago that I started to think about this, the philosophy of insolvency law. If this is really the last answer I could or I should give, I have my doubts. I don't know if there's anything behind it, if there's anything more. Now, third question of yours, has it changed? The answer is yes. Because it has, for centuries, been seen in the law, bankruptcy law, bankruptcy in the, in the old fashion, killing, literally speaking, killing understanding. It has been, it has been a revenge of the creditors of the society to the one, to the culprit. I mean, when you are reading, and I strongly recommend to all of you who are listening, read around. When you are Germans, read Die Buddenbrooks by Thomas Mann. When you are French, read Honoré de Balzac, whatever comes along. Now, when you read this, you see that that um, and law always was a sort of revenge. The creditors have been raped and have been there their property has been stolen by the by the debtor and this the debtor being or equalized with the with the thief is literally has uh, dominated for centuries the discussion of insolvency law if a thief was killed as a consequence, as a sanction, it was the equation that then a bankrupt has also to be killed because he had stolen the money of his creditors. It took a long way, and that's another fascinating story to look at why this change has come along. We started with killing. 2,500 years ago, the ancient Romans wrote it into their um, uh, statute, the 12 tables, so that if a debtor is unable to pay his creditors, he can be cut into pieces. He was treated, as I said, um, for centuries. In the UK, incidentally, until something like 150, no, 200 years ago, when the last, the la and in the United States, when the last uh, bankrupt was, was hung. He was He was killed. He was really killed. And now when you take this into account, and if you look with this background, and here I come to the fascination of, of history, if you look now at what had happened during the last 40 years, 40 years is nothing. 40 years, four oh, these are four decades. Within four decades, we had that the United States enacted the Chapter 11 proceeding. And it was thanks to the work, among others, of the IMF and the World Bank 
And that's where I played a little role in this. That we nowadays, if you look at the globe, we have almost no jurisdiction at all on this globe, which has not a rescue, a rescue option in insolvency law. If you look at this incredible speed that there is a new idea, for thousands of years you had the killing of the debtor, or at least the revenge. You put him into jail, that's another thing. And then 40 years ago, all of a sudden a new idea pops up. And after 40 years, it's covering the entire world. I mean, that makes you ask when you have this understanding of, or this, this curiosity towards evolution, where does it come from? That makes you ask the question, why the hell do we have this almost unique, absolutely unique phenomenon that a new idea is conquering the world within 40 years? And that is where I've written a couple of things about. My answer to this is again, and here you see the interrelationship and the, what I find so interesting with insolvency law, the answer is not a legal question. It's not the legal phenomenon. I mean, that's an interesting concept, but we have thousands of interesting concepts in the world, but they do not spread within 40 years. They do not conquer the world within 40 years. No, it has to do with the economy. That's because the, the economy is changing. We had When you're in a production environment in which we had been for thousands of years, then um, creditors always want to have their money back, which they have given to the debt. So what do you do when someone who is in the production sector, when you want to get the money back, you're selling his assets? All right. So that is what we know. That is our traditional bankruptcy law. What are, however... 50 years ago, that is what the historians in economy are telling you. 50 years ago, we started to have a new sector in the economic development, and that is the service sector. Now, when I'm servicing, take, that's my favorite example. Maybe it's a little bit outdated now, but nevertheless, you all will understand what I mean. Take a software developer. A software developer might be a brainy, might be a fantastic person. But what does he have, he or she? I mean, maybe a desk, certainly a couple of computers, but they are used already for a couple of months or years. And that's it. So how, as a creditor, how do you get access to the main value of this particular service person? The The incredible value of this person is nothing that you can sell on the market. It's a piece in his brain because this piece in the brain which made him an outstanding software developer. So what the hell? How do you transform this into money? I mean, one way would be you carve out, you scratch out this piece of, of brain in his head. This must be painful. And then you sell it on, on eBay or I don't know how, you sell it on the open market, and it probably won't work. But this would be the traditional liquidation uh, approach. So what do you do under these circumstances? It is economic reason that you, as a creditor, the same creditor who until 
50 years ago, killed the debtor. You are now helping the debtor in order that he gets back into business, in order to unfold his real, however, not attachable potential and capabilities in order to get your money back. Restructure adapter, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Restructure the debtor because otherwise you have no access to the, the real value. Under these circumstances, incidentally, um, allow me to, to continue with this historical development. The, the historians in, in economy, they are telling you that we are approaching the fourth sector, uh, economic sector, and that is the knowledge sector. And in the knowledge sector, my big question, my big question mark, and that is what I throw to you. I throw it on the table, so to speak. What is the ideal? How do you, as a creditor, get access to the knowledge and how can you transform that into um, satisfaction of your claims as a creditor in the future? How does the future insolvency law look like? I so don't think it's yeah. a question that I can answer. Maybe some of our listeners might be able to give their insight or I mean, stop doing Fantastic. research in the area. Fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I invite everyone who's listening to that to write a dissertation or whatsoever about these questions. I think this is burning and these are burning questions. I totally agree with you, Christoph. I think that we covered actually the next question, which was about the changes of insolvency law. Maybe we can move to the following one, which is about uh, developments uh, that occurred at uh, international, so it's the World Bank, IMF, or regional level, such as the European Union. How have they affected these changes, the evolution and practice of domestic insolvency law? Again, that is a great question. Um, Maybe if you can give us some examples of what you've seen in uh, your practice as, as a solicitor in your academic life, uh, yeah. just to let us understand. Okay, I, I, I tell you a little bit about my, my personal experience. I was always interested in the, the cross-border insolvency law. And in the early 90s, when I published my first article, the main or the most prominent insolvency administrator in Germany, he, he told me, uh, smiling, almost laughing, I've read your article, and it's interesting esoterics. He did take it for serious. It was something which he, in his daily practical life, would almost never touch upon. And be just for that reason that in those days, the main obstacle to cross-border insolvency law have been the tax claims. It sounds ridiculous because it was changed from one day to the other, literally. Let me first explain. The usual, the traditional argument has been tax claims of another country will, may not, must not, are strictly forbidden to participate in a cross-border insolvency law. Why? Because we, here, on the domestic level, we are not collecting the taxes of another country. I mean, that is, it reminded me always of the kindergarten. I mean, when you, once you have children, or when you have one child and you see it playing in the, in the kindergarten, this is the most used argument. 
that they are taking away from the other one the toy with which the other kid is just playing by saying, this is mine and you must not, you must not take it. And I felt reminded of this, of this kitty behavior. I mean, it's strange. It's strange. However, um, that has been a reality. That was the main obs obstacle for the, any evolution of cross-border and Soviet law. And then it was this. I mean, it was bumpy, the, the, the coming into existence of the European and Soviet regulation. But the European and Soviet regulation, which entered into force on the 31st of May of 2002, changed from one second to the other, changed the situation. Tax claims all of a sudden, as a matter of course, took part in any insolvency proceeding. There was not even an issue any longer. And I practically had also to do with a particular case in which a German insolvency proceeding needed to be recognized in Spain. And in that particular case, It took the Spanish authorities and courts up to the Supremo um, Tribunal. It took them three years to say in the end, well, the German insolvency law seems to be okay, and for that reason we recognize it. We recognize the insolvency proceeding. A year later, that was in 2001, if I remember correctly, might also have been in 2000 uh, or in 1999. Anyway. Then we had this regulation, boom, all of a sudden. It was not a question any longer. I mean, when you talk about dramatic evolutions of dramatic change of things, then it's this. And for that reason, I'm extremely grateful and proud that we have this instrument because all of a sudden, innumerable questions were solved and nobody any longer ask these questions. And that is what I find extremely fascinating. And again, I'm grateful for that, because that is what brought us Europeans closer together. That's so true. Okay, I will not mention the V word, because uh, we don't have time to discuss it. But uh, I totally agree with you on, uh, on this feeling. And I hope that it will continue in the future, as European instruments are always improving and always uh, strengthening the collaboration between member states. I think that now I can move on to a question on changes uh, that are occurring and you think that can shape the future of insolvency law and insolvency research. I think that you already mentioned artificial intelligence. Is there anything else that you think will have a powerful impact in the near future on uh, insolvency practice and insolvency research? Yes. Yes. Uh, number one is, I mean, this, what I said already, the The most important driver is this shifts, these shifts of, of, um, of the economic sectors. Once again, from the production sector to the, to the service sector to the knowledge sector. And now thereafter, there will be a fifth or sixth or seventh sector. So these are the drivers. And once again, I mean, what you learn from history, allow me to, to add this. In order to make my point, it's only that you, when you look back into history that you learn what is the underlying driver. The underlying driver in the end of the day is no matter in which sector you are, in the knowledge sector, in the service sector, 
in the end of the day, you are dealing in insolvency law with the conflict of the creditor is not able to pay the creditors in full. And the creditors find this a damn situation, which they dislike, and the debtor possibly also, but that is how it is. And how do you solve this conflict? So that's the underlying uh, uh, commonality. Now, what else is driving? This brings me to what I have now alluded to already twice. And now I should say, what we see, again, looking from the historical uh, bird's eye view, you see that until recently, when talking about insolvency laws in this world, we were measuring this, is it more creditor-friendly or is it more debtor-friendly? And we had, in addition, we had this, this scale, is it driven by the creditors or is it more supervised by the court? And now we have a dramatic shift. This is true at least for Europe. Again, it comes from the United States. And from there, thanks to the Chapter 11 proceeding and its spread during the last 40 years all over the world, it is sort of universally. Um, we have increasingly stronger emphasis put on the role of the debtor. We have increasingly debtor-driven proceedings. And this brings me to the question, and allow me to mention in this context already that um, this is my last article which I've written, and I'm still fascinated from what I learned during writing this, and I'm planning to write a few more articles on that, because that is, in my understanding, a dramatic shift. In order to make this understandable as clearly as possible, Take, again, this, what I've said initially, in some laws, purpose is to clean up the economy. So we don't want to have zombies. We don't want to have ineffective, inefficient industries. We want to have our, our economy running as smoothly as possible without anyone sitting on the brake. Now, that is exactly the role of insolvency law, to take care of it. If this is, however, and I guess all economists, at least most of the economists, will agree with that, and lawyers as well, and you, Eugene, you were friendly enough to say that you agree with that. If this is really the purpose of insolvency or at least one of the main purposes of insolvency law, I wonder, my huge question is now that we have an increasing emphasis of a debtor-driven proceeding. The question which arises for me in this context is, is the debtor of all stakeholders the right person to take the lead in the cleaning process? I mean, you can observe this in the United States. There are already articles written about that. And we here in Germany, we are discussing that. Not yet in the insolvency area, but in labor law and so on. You see increasingly that companies are planning their reorganization and liquidation in a way that they divide their company or their, their uh, group of companies in a way that they say, 
all which are on the left side, they are destined to go into liquidation. And the good part comes to the right side. And that is what I sent into reorganization. And here I come probably with them, or possibly with a naive question, at least with the curiosity of, um, of an academic, whether this is something which is sound. If this is a prudent decision to impose the task of the cleaning of the, of the economy to the decision-making of a debtor. But the debtors are never alone when they make those decisions, are they? Yeah, okay. Excellent question. However, the more you build on the power of the creditors or of third parties, without having this institutionalized in the law, the more you take away weight and importance of insolvency law. So you're basically arguing that the system of checks and balances between debtors and creditors at the moment is too imbalanced towards debtors in favor of debtors. Right. It goes into this direction. It goes into this direction. Once again, seeing not so much um, the, 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 the power game. I mean, the creditors can, can help themselves. But as an institution, is that really the, the correct way how you want to avoid zombification. Can you, can you avoid zombification of the economy under these circumstances? And this is a very good point, and I would like to build on that and link this to the next question, which is more about your publications. So far, we have spoken of basically companies, but the problems, and I think that this is one major problem that we will need to deal with in the near future. The problem is kind of different when we move from companies to states, to countries, or even to municipalities, which is where I'm doing a bit of research at the moment. How do you think that the commercial law can uh, help states, municipalities, and uh, uh, these entities to develop a, a proceeding that is orderly and that allows them to basically restructure their debt. Are you not talking about sovereign debt? Yes, I am. Oh, my God. What a field you're opening. That's opening the door to, <laughs> to the universe, so to speak. Um, I think that actually, where we're speaking of uh, major changes and sovereign debt, uh, sovereign debt is one of major issues um, that we will have to factor in near absolutely. future because it's one of the legacies of COVID. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, of course, absolutely true, absolutely true. Uh, incidentally, two days ago, I had a conference and I, I was co-organizer uh, of a conference in Frankfurt on on sovereign debt restructuring. I mean, you have. Seen from an intellectual point of view, or from any logic, from any any um, logic built on that, what we usually describe as as prudence or as intellect intellectuals or so, you have every reason to establish an order orderly proceeding for the restructuring of sovereign debts. I give you an example. In 2011, I mean, that was in the middle of, of, of the Greek crisis. And I guess I don't have to tell you 
maybe you are too, uh, or many of the listeners might be too young to remember that. And therefore, just briefly, Germany was was um, pretty much hated. Hated, I don't know, but it was disliked by many people in the rest of the European Union because they were the rich ones and and uh, they were made responsible for everything. In this context, because they behaved and they, they, they exerted a, a considerable pressure, a high pressure, actually, um, on, on, on the Greek politics and so on. And it was blamed for that all over Europe. And in those days, I spoke with a very high-ranked uh, German politician, and we were standing on a table right next to each other. Nobody else was listening. He was telling me, Mr. Paulus, you are perfectly right in your critics. I can tell you the situation that we have right now should be taken off the hands of the politicians. So he knew as a, polit as a private person who was talking to an academic, he knew that whatever he did was wrong. However, for political reasons, he did it. When I was 2015, a couple of years later in, in Rome, uh, I was in the Sapienza and I was a little bit outside of the Centro Storico, so we're in, in an area where almost no tourists are. And I saw all these, these announcements because there was an election forthcoming and Salvini was there. And Salvini's party had made a picture both of, of Schäuble and Angela Merkel and had just written under this in the Italian election and had written, these are the guys who are uh, making you poor. So, I mean, when, when you have this as a consequence of your dealing with a debt crisis, I would say every argument speaks in favor that you introduce a procedure in order to depoliticize the process and to transform it to the neutrality of a neutral instance. And that is, again, politicians do understand it when you talk to them from person to person. But in the public sphere, there is no agreement. So that makes me think the reason why we have not yet such a procedure is that there is a power game going on. It, it, it has sort of irrational, but in this irrationality, rational reasons to stick to, this, to the situation that we have. Nevertheless, I mean, coming back to your question, that we are discussing the possibility of an insolvency of a state, that is remarkable. Discussing in such an intense way that we have this as part in this interview, but also in many others, and that I had at the conference two days ago. And that is thanks to the Chapter 11 proceeding. I mean, the Chapter 11 proceeding is nothing but an invitation to negotiation. As Jay Westbrook and Elizabeth Warren have written in their textbook, it's an invitation to negotiation. So they are not offering any solutions. They are just offering a platform on which and in which you can reach an agreement between the debtor and the creditors. So this is a first step towards that what we desperately need. We need a procedure for, for uh, states and be it just for political reasons. Incidentally, if any uh, economists should happen to listen or anyone with, with deep economic interests, I'm not getting tired to say and to recommend 
to write on something. And that is that economists should calculate at one stage the costs of a non-proceeding. That is a tricky question, I was told by many economists. Nevertheless, some 40 years ago, there was an Italian economist, uh, Cecchini. He has written a report which was extremely influential. The name of the report was The Costs of Non-Euro. And he calculated that the non-proliferation of of progress of a European Union would cost or would diminish the potential of profit and gain uh, to 4% or something like that. Now, what I want strongly recommend those who are listening to this and who feel, who feel the same sense of the same fascination of this question like I do. Um, I want to encourage you to do it nevertheless. The reaction to this Cecchini pro, uh, report was, first of all, that the European Union came closer together than it had been before, and it was sort of starting point for the euro. The reason why it established economists shy away from entering this question, the cost of a non-proceeding, is they are telling me again and again that Cecchini made a lot of mistakes that it's so difficult to calculate, and for that reason, they don't dare to go into it. In the end of the day, when I, I, I push them a little bit further, they are afraid of doing a mistake. And the young researchers who are listening, I want to strongly encourage you, forget about the mistakes. If you look back to the, to the uh, knowledge history, of at least Europe, probably of the entire world, you find many, many mistakes. The evolution to a certain degree is built on mistakes. So what? It's not killing you. To the contrary, it might bring forward the evolution which is indispensable. And my strong conviction is once you could show on a reasonable, maybe somewhat mistaken and somewhat wrong calculation that the costs of a non-procedure are so-and-so, and if you had a procedure, the cost would be lower. That would be a strong argument for any politician. Thank you, Christoph. I totally share with you. Just uh, a footnote to, add to what you said uh, before for our non-Italian friends. Salvini is uh, the leader of the right-wing nationalist party in Italy. So you mentioned him before. Yeah. I just wanted to... Oh, uh, but, okay, right. All right. So I would like to ask you some questions about academic writing in particular. So there are a few questions. Maybe you can approach them all together. So you are bilingual. I guess that at least you are bilingual. And you publish in uh, German and in, uh, in English. How do you decide whether you want to publish in, in English and German, how you approach your writing more in general, and is there a difference in, uh, in the way you approach it depending on which journal you, you are targeting? Oh, that is a question which is hard to answer. In, in a couple of cases, I've written something in Germany, in, in, in German, and then I recognized, oh, this is what I deem to be important enough to share it on a broader level. And then I translated that into English and, and brought it there. An example is that what I've written in the, in the Festschrift 
for my dear friend uh, Jay Westbrook. I mean, it's the question that you, you all know. I mean, uh, I, you have an idea. And then is this something what you want to share with all your friends or just with certain friends? Is this something which is should be made known to a broad audience or to a smaller audience? So it is it's hard to get a little more precise. It's it, it's depending on the on, on the on the issue you're dealing with. How do you approach yeah. academic writing? Do you have like a routine or something like that? Or do you read and then I'm 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 afraid to say, I mean, that must be disappointing for any young researcher. And you get so much into a routine once you are in my own age that you have difficulties to remember how difficult it was in the beginning to find a topic at all, which which might have been interesting enough. I'm in the fortunate position, which is certainly not right and not uh, true for anyone. When I read an article, I have after literally each article, the idea for two new uh, articles, which I would like to write. And Share some with, uh, of, the, of these ideas with us, <laughs> please. I mean, I'm I'm getting more and more in, in into this into this. I give you one example. I mean, it's it's more fundamental. It's you have, of course, these daily daily issue questions when when a certain court, the Supreme Court of your country, is deciding this or that. Is it right or wrong? Did did these judges made a mistake or not? I mean, that is, of course, when you read a decision, I I. I in most cases, I would like to write the the, the d- uh, dissenting opinion to this. Anyway, um, no, what I find recently, I mean, you, you, we have the pandemic, and all of a sudden, I recognize that there is a repetitive uh, pattern on underlying all of these reactions. Again, if you look from a higher distance, it is a continuity of of, of behavioral um, reactions. Uh, we, you might know, or I should um, let you know, that we in Germany, we have here the duty for companies, we have the duty to file for bankruptcy under certain uh, circumstances. Now, this duty is strict, and it's sanctioned not only by by the, the repayment of damages, but also it's criminally sanctioned. So it's really, really strict. And we had, during the last 20 years, we had five times a flooding. The first time was 2002. There was a, a river, the Elbe, was getting over the, uh, the banks, and it was destroying entire villages. And then it was called, oh, this is a once-in-a-century flood that we have. And for that reason, we have to abolish this duty to file for insolvency. Well, it was not a matter for a, a, a once-in-a-century event. We had it um, repeated during the last 20 years four, maybe even five times. And it was always the same reaction. We lifted this obligation to file for bankruptcy. Then we had the pandemics. We lifted the duty to file bankruptcy. Under these circumstances, if, 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 you, if you recognize such a common pattern. You might come to the idea, and that is what I had written something like 
eight years ago, and what I've translated for the for the U.S. audience in a, a U.S. fest shop. I make the distinction between good weather, insolvency law, and bad weather, insolvency law. And when you're talking about good weather, insolvency law, you all of a sudden, you recognize that the insolvency laws that we have are all built on a couple of assumptions. The assumption, for instance, if, if, if you are saying, if the debtor is not viable, the debtor company is not viable, then you liquidate it. Okay, that is what you find in all insolvency laws. Liquidation, however, and that is what we learned from the Greek situation in 2010, it presupposes that you have a market to sell these assets. So the economic pre-understanding, which you are not discussing as a lawyer at all, is that you have a market. What the hell, however, are you doing if you have no such market? The same is true with, with the labor force. You send companies into liquidation. That means usually that something like 50% of the working uh, power is left into unemployment. So what are you doing sociologically with these unemployed? You need something. You need a market on which these guys who are unemployed and that they find another working place. However, what if there is no other company? And if you then look for, at what the economists are writing, that the uh, foundation or the, the, the startups or the, the, the tendency to found a new company has declined during the last 20 years on a global scale dramatically. Then all of a sudden you see, whoops, in insolvency law, we are presupposing the existence of something which is not granted at all. And that, of course, next step is what do we, if we do not have these, or if it turns out that these pre, um, presumptions or presuppositions uh, are not correct, and that is my bad weather law. So this is what I would strongly recommend to all those who are listening and to the young researchers. Be curious. Ask these, these, these crazy questions. And incidentally, if I may add this personal note, what helps me in this context, I'm, I'm married to a non-academic, wonderful, beloved wife with, who has one, one defect. She is extreme fan of Bayern München, which I'm not. But however, I'm 31 years married to her, and for that reason, I have to comply. And it makes life <laughs> extremely easy. I mean, these Bayern, they always win. And that is, of course, being fan of such a team is fantastic. Um, my team constantly uh, loses, and for that reason, I, I appreciate her approach. However, quite often, I'm, I'm telling her what I'm thinking about. And she comes with remarks and questions, which would never come from someone who is studied in law, because these guys who are, have studied laws, they are already in the tunnel. But she is not in the tunnel. She tells me... You're crazy. You're, you're stupid. And, and what are you doing with this? What are you doing with that? So that helps. Talk to other people. Having a fresh perspective. Absolutely. Get out of your echo room and talk to other people. Perfect. Thank you, Christoph. Uh, we're approaching the end of the interview. So if you don't mind, I would like to ask you some questions. I disclosed to Christoph that there would have been some questions at the end that were not uh, discussed in advance. 
And Christoph told me, oh, I'm really, really scared by the questions. You don't have to be scared. They're really, they're not too personal. They're simply normal questions that would like, uh, they would probably give us a glimpse on, on your life and some, uh, some of the, uh, the advice that you can give us. For instance, I mean, the first question that I would like to, to ask you is, I mean, you have been an extremely successful academic, professional, possibly in your life, you had moments in which you experienced failure or apparent failure. How this has influenced you and did this set you up for later success? And if you have any, anything that you can discuss with us, of course, I mean, if you have only had success in your life, I mean, <laughs> we can move on to the next one. But. No, no, no. I, I mean, that is a wonderful question. And it, it's, it's probably the most important question at all. Of course, I had failures. Of course, I have. And I'm afraid almost every day that I, that I make an, just another mistake. I feel always uncertain and insecure whether the idea that I have, if it's true, if it's nonsense or whatsoever. My, my strong advice, incidentally, I've given this advice also to my son, for instance, is the following. Be true at least to yourself. Don't betray yourself. Don't turn in your disappointment because you have made a mistake. And because you have been wrong, don't turn that in your own mind into a success or into a non-failure. At least you can do it with everyone else. You can tell everyone, wow, it, wasn't, it was not wrong. Look at, at it from this perspective and so on and so forth. But for yourself, be true to yourself. So that is, first of all, it's good for your own inner health that you're not carrying a lie with you around, and it makes you stronger. Well, yeah, I mean, this, this is absolutely true. The, the, I think that uh, it's kind of difficult to understand when you failed, how, uh, how deeply you failed. It leads a lot of introspection. It, leads, it needs a lot of uh, self-analysis. So it's... <laughs> People Absolutely. should be reflective, should have the time to reflect and not simply to, uh, I mean, move on to the next task and uh, sort of support. Exactly. Final question before we conclude this interview. What is one of the best or the most worthwhile investments you have ever made? It can be anything, including family. Yeah. In my life, it has been maybe two things. Uh, number one, family, my wife and my son. And second, I must say, again, that's of course personal, it's very personal. Um, you can't see it because it's, it's an oral interview. And behind my chair is a visible a cello. I once had to decide to become a cellist or uh, to go to law. I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced that I made the right choice. However, music gives me a lot. Thank you. I think that there were other uh, interviewees uh, who came here and said that you need to have a hobby, you need to have a passion uh, just to keep yourself safe and focused. And so, yeah, I, I'm sure that many other people will uh, share those feelings with you. Sure. Thanks, Christoph, for, uh, for being here today and for sharing these aspects of your personal life and these view your views on insolvency law. 
to all to, to our audience. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Eugenio. It was great talking to you. Thank you.